for a lot of the athletes and folks that we we work with, it's kind of the first time that they're they're actually thinking about their brain being a part of the the equation, right? We we very much kind of thought like physicality is the key to success in sport, but everybody's big and everybody's strong and everybody's fast at, at the most elite levels. So what differentiates, and oftentimes it's what's going on above the neck. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Alomes, and I'll be guiding you through each episode as we explore the intersection of sports and technology through weekly in-depth interviews with some of the brightest minds in sports tech from all over the world. Our guest this week is Tom Nugent. Tom leads the Elite Performance Solutions Division for Platypus Institute, which provides state-of-the-art neurocognitive assessments and training programs to professional sports teams and military operator communities. In addition to being a former Division I athlete himself, Tom has nearly 20 years of experience in neuroscience research, including working with the Pentagon's Emerging Tech Department, DARPA, on improving Navy SEALs through brain training. Today we chat about how tech is being used to measure and then improve the brains of elite athletes to ultimately increase performance. Make sure you stay tuned towards the end of the episode, where we discuss brain injuries, including CTE, and Tom's thoughts on why recently accepted concussion protocols are actually the worst for promoting long-term brain recovery. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here it is. So welcome to the podcast, Tom Nugent. Great to have you on Sports Tech Feed. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Looking forward to talking. Well, we'll, um, we'll dive straight into it. Um, neuroscience. So really explain to me, like I'm five years old or a very intelligent golden retriever, what is the concept of brain plasticity and neurocognitive training which you're working in? Yeah, so it's, it's funny, right? We always have uh, this joke that uh, when you explain scientific stuff, you have to be able to put it in terms that your, your grandmother can, can understand, right? And my, uh, my chocolate lab uh, next to me uh, is, is <laughs> listening intently since you mentioned uh, Golden Retriever. But yeah, so Ch- the chocolate lab's a keto. We'll go, we'll go with chocolate lab. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I just had to get a shout out for her in there. Um, but yeah, so this idea of, of brain plasticity and, and, and neuroplasticity, right, it, it really kind of comes from uh, some, some groundbreaking movement that's happened in the, in the neuroscience uh, field over probably about the, the last 25 years or so, uh, where, you know, for a long time, this idea of the brain you're born with is the brain that you have was kind of the standard thought, right? Uh, but but that's been proven to not actually be, be true. And so, you know, you think of this idea of plasticity. What is plasticity? It's being malle- malleable. It's being flexible. Uh, and when you look at the strength of your brain, it comes down to how strong those connections are between different areas of your brain. And so the research has shown, and, and this is just great academic research, uh, improvements in, in imaging technology and different hardware applications that your brain can change uh, over the lifespan, uh, not just in terms of like normal aging effects, but that you can actually improve it. And so you're, you're not stuck with the brain that you were uh, originally given and you can work on it just like you can anything else from a physical perspective uh, to, to improve uh, your, your brain's capacity and function. Yeah, gotcha. So is it, I mean, is it fair to say kind of within the sports? Because this is, this is something that Platypus, um, and I'll ask you a second a bit more about Platypus, but you, you work across uh, a lot of elite areas, um, not just within sports. But sticking with sports is, 
Um, is it similar to kind of think of as say a muscle? Like everyone, you know, everyone's born with with biceps or whatever, and and it's more what you do with it than um, where you have that. But everyone still, that being said, everyone still has different starting points. Is that is that a good way to kind of phrase, um, I guess, brain plasticity? Yeah. So. When when we talk about it, uh, you know, there's there's a phrase, uh, there's a Hebbian phrase uh, within neuroscience that's the idea that neurons that fire together wire together, right? That's probably one of the more common uh, terms of phrase in the field. But it's it's essentially this idea of being able, you know, use it or lose it, right? To create good connections between different parts of your brain, you have to use them, you have to you have to flex them. Uh, if you will. And, and it's not all that uh, dissimilar from the idea of, of muscles uh, when you think about it in a sports context that you have to be able to work out those muscles uh, to be able to improve their strength, improve their, their flexibility, right? Uh, and, yeah. and when you, you apply that to a larger concept like cognitive training, it, it's not just the idea of, of use it or lose it, it's keep using it and get better, right? Uh, but it's it's not just uh, related only to use, right? There's things like sleep, uh, nutrition, uh, exercise, and, and what we'll talk about later, this idea of cognitive training that all add up to uh, factors that help improve that, that idea of brain plasticity and, and cognitive improvement. Yeah. Okay, great. And so um, obviously at Platypus Neuroscience, so how did you find yourself in this, in this area? I imagine it's not something that people kind of stumble into every day of the week, um, basically understanding uh, brains. Yeah, so I think you can trace it back all the way uh, to, to my college days. Uh, you know, I really shaped my experience uh, th- throughout my, my, my trajectory to get where I'm at now. Uh, I was really fortunate uh, at my undergraduate at Princeton that some of my thesis advisors and professors were really early pioneers in this idea of, of neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, right? So folks like Elizabeth Gould and Charlie Gross uh, were really pushing the field uh, when, I, when I was just a, a young pup to keep the dog analogies going yep. uh, in the field of neuroscience uh, where they were, they were really starting to understand uh, in, in, you know, uh, primates and in mice uh, where the idea of, you know, your brain is able to actually grow new neurons or, or you can improve uh, the strength and connection of neurons through enriched environments, right? Uh, that was just fascinating to me when I was really just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, uh, you know, from, from an educational standpoint. And, then, and I think you, you sprinkle in a little bit of the fact that I was a Division One athlete, and I was fascinated by motion perception in humans, right? And I actually did my, my undergraduate dissertation on this concept called a flashlight illusion. Uh, and kind of to, to stay in that lay uh, description lane, you know, so you think about a, a 100 mile per hour fastball, right? Uh, there's a typical uh, latency of the information hitting your eye and then getting to your visual cortex in your brain and you're being able to process. That's a baseball moving really fast, right? Uh, what's yeah. really amazing about your brain is that that lag that occurs uh, from from that image hitting your eyes to the back of your brain in your visual cortex, it's it's between a tenth and two tenths of a second, right? Uh, but that ball, that hundred mile per hour fastball, moves about fifteen feet during that latency lag that occurs in your system. But somehow, 
as humans, we're still able to anticipate and correctly identify the location of that ball, even though we're essentially seeing it 15 miles per hour in the past, right? So, yeah. you know, there's this fascinating concept for me growing up that like, wow, as an athlete, we're able to do these tremendously complex things, but nobody thinks twice about it, right? Um, and so and is that something that... Really yeah, sorry to interrupt. I, I mean, so just to dive in on that concept of, I mean, motion perception, that, that is that where when people refer to seeing in slow motion? I know it's something that um, reading a lot of accounts of um, military, for instance, special forces going into situations where um, explosions, sensory overload, all that kind of stuff. And, and for them, it's being able to focus and, and feel like they're seeing everything in slow motion, take all this information in and then um, act where others would freeze. Yeah, so I, I think that would probably be more categorized as as what's kind of colloquially known as a flow state, right? Where you're you're really in the zone uh, and and you perceive things kind of slowing down, that you're able to think everything through, process information, uh, and and still be able to to react uh, in a real time, uh, almost uh, spider sense capability right um so slightly different but but still kind of again comes back to this idea that your brain is just an amazing piece of machinery and your ability to take in information process it recognize it and uh use that information to make decisions or or actions uh is just phenomenal right uh you know you think about the strength of computers in terms of ram and processing speed and everything else your brain is is the best computer uh, when, when it comes to a lot of these things and the fact that it works so seamlessly in our, our day-to-day experience. And then when you think about how it's applied in sport, uh, it's just tremendously impressive. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so Div 1 athlete, uh, obviously doing your undergrad, and then I understand you actually worked um, uh, with DARPA for a bit before you came into Platypus. Yes, correct. Uh, so, uh, you know, after uh, going through the, the academic route and, and realizing that the, the pace and speed of uh, academics wasn't really suited for me, uh, I, I had the fortunate luck to uh, get picked up by Dr. Amy Cruz, uh, who's now Platypus's chief scientific officer uh, over at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, where we were looking at how we can apply neuroscience research and findings to benefit the warfighter, right? So this was really exciting stuff. I went from uh, doing academic work at the National Institutes of Health, uh, where I was studying psychiatric populations uh, in children, so like child onset schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, ADHD, things like that, uh, where the the progress and the movement of the research traditionally in, in clinical and research spaces is pretty slow, right? Uh, and now jumping over to the DARPA side, where uh, it, it was very much driven by creating technological surprise or preventing technological surprise, uh, but really how can we use neuroscience to benefit the warfighter? So uh, we, we worked on amazing projects around like computer vision inspired by how the, the eye and the visual cortex processes information to advance object recognition uh, improving the effectiveness of overhead satellite imagery analysis by measuring brain activity in real time. And uh, most related to platypus, this idea of accelerating skill acquisition to reach levels of mastery faster than traditional means, right? Uh, and one of the, the great 
seminal examples, and I think this leads really well into what we do at Platypus, was work that we did uh, with uh, expert marksmanship, right? So being that it was the military and Department of Defense, everybody uh, was interested in marksmanship. You have to be able to shoot a gun and shoot a gun well, right? Yeah. And uh, one, of, one of the projects uh, that was worked on was the idea, could we use neuroscience measures and understandings to identify differences in brains of experts versus brains of novices? So we worked with, uh, you know, coaches of the coaches, best of the best for known distance marksmanship and instrumented them with a bevy of different uh, neuroscience hardware uh, devices, right? So we were measuring EEG, which is measuring brain activity through the scalp in real time, heart rate and heart rate variability, respiration, galvanic skin, right? Every basic data stream that we could pull from an individual. while they were going through their task and, and something that's very very clearly you can i mean marksman it's a target you can measure performance as well so in terms of measuring output it's very easy to see but, um, how someone's doing yeah absolutely and, and so for for this this study uh the the output measure was shot dispersion right so how tightly grouped a series of shots were on on a projected target and what we found was that the brains of experts were very different than the brains of novices. And so, you know, just during a conversation like this, uh, an expert marksman's brain would look very typical and, and not really uh, recognizably different. But then if you said lock and load, for example, right, and they had to get ready to complete their task, their brain would enter a very distinct and repeatable and reliable state, which you essentially could consider being an in-the-zone state for marksmanship, right? They would execute their task, they would take their shot, and then they would come out of that state and just kind of go back to a, a normal everyday level of brain activity. So this was fascinating, right? We've, we've identified a specific neurophysiological signature for expertise in a given task. Um, so, you know, found fantastic, right? Found a signature, there's a difference. The, the next yeah. big step was being able to apply that uh, to novices and see if we could accelerate that trajectory from novice to expert. And so over the course of a, a few weeks uh, with about 15 to 20 minutes of training a day, a couple days a week, uh, we were able to move 80% of the novices who received the training into a, a level of uh, expertise, they qualified as expert marksmen just by the brain training alone, right? So this didn't uh, have any uh, additional instruction on the physical aspect, the typical normal training, right? Just purely training the brain to mimic that expert state. We were able to speed up that, that mastery of that skill uh, for marksmanship, right? So this was kind of the big seminal example for the idea of applied neuroscience for uh, skill optimization, right? Uh, and yeah. it was extremely like, successful within the DOD, uh, really made some headlines of let's start to take neuroscience out of the lab and start to apply it in real world situations. You know, so fast forward, uh, you know, a, a decade of time, uh, post DARPA and a few other defense companies. And um, you find platypus today. And so Amy, like I mentioned, is our chief science officer and, and 
Uh, I'm part of the uh, the company as well as our VP of uh, Elite Performance, and now we're actually kind of taking this this notion of applied neuroscience and making it a reality for skill optimization in elite populations. So within Elite Sports, what are you actually testing? So and how do you test that? Yeah, so we like we like to call it our cognitive combine, especially when you're when you're thinking about sports, right? And and when you think of the combine or the, this concept of a combine in general you're measuring a series of different physical attributes, right? Whether it's the uh, 40 meter dash or uh, vertical leap, uh, things like that, right? Um, bench press, uh, core measurements of strength, flexibility, speed, uh, that are highly associated with success at a professional level. Uh, we're, we're essentially doing the same thing, but from, uh, from the brain's perspective, right? So for us, rather than doing a, a 40 yard dash, it's a test of reaction speed, right? Uh, and then elevating it to procedural reaction speed. So you're not only just reacting, you have to recognize what you're reacting to, right? Uh, measurements like visual processing speed, how quickly your brain is able to process visual information uh, as it's coming in, right? Uh, Decision-making skills, uh, things related to executive function. Uh, so all these different cortical measures that are very well validated in, in the literature, uh, but have also been shown to have a significant impact on high performance in sport or other elite uh, activities. Uh, so essentially, we've created a, uh, a testing ground to measure all those different components and essentially see where you rack and stack uh, against other folks within and your sport. So so how does that how does that look when it's when it's tested? Because I think of brain testing, I think of going in for a CAT scan. You know, it's the big machine. You can't have any metal on you, or it might blow up, or whatever's going to happen. And you sit in this bed, and it's an hour, and something rotates around your head. How do you actually test this? I mean, I'm not asking for kind of your secret sauce and and the patents, but what does it look like? If I'm if I'm an athlete, I'm coming along. I know when I turn up to the to the combine, I have 40 yard dash. That's pretty self explanatory. I run 40. 40 yards, vertical leap, I jump as high as I can, um, you know, bench press, I just bench press until I, until I drop. Uh, a brain test, a neurocognitive assessment, what, is that, what does that look like if you can paint a picture? Sure. So you're right. There are um, some outstanding ways to, to measure your brain and brain activity when you're in a scanner, usually in a very clinical or hospital setting, right? But uh, yeah toting around a very large magnet in an MRI machine <laughs> is not very cost-effective and uh, not, not easy to pull off. So uh, what we've done is we've, we've leveraged some of the, uh, the most uh, cutting-edge technology and capabilities in neuroscience to create a, a portable assessment uh, that we bring to athletes at a facility for their, for their, their team. Uh, but essentially, we come to you, right? And so uh, we have a portable EEG system uh, that, you know, basically sits on sits on your head, takes a, a few minutes just to calibrate, uh, and is measuring electrical potential change through your scalp in real time. And so this is a really nice non-invasive way to see how those different areas of your brain are communicating with each other uh, while you're doing different tasks, right? And so you can imagine uh, you're, you're in a classroom or at like a desk uh, office space environment, we put the system on your head, you're, you're sitting with a, a tablet or a laptop, and you're going through a series of different uh, neurocognitive, neuropsychological battery of tests 
against those different combine categories that I had mentioned earlier. And so this, this typically takes under an hour, uh, you know, I'd say close to 45 minutes uh, or less, depending on how quickly we can we get everything set up and through. But essentially with that, that small amount of time and under an hour of uh, time spent, we're able to capture a very comprehensive profile of how your brain uh, performs in these different categories, right? So like I mentioned, we're measuring neurophysiological neuropsych, neurocognitive, some self-report around things like nutrition and sleep and stress to get like a very comprehensive profile that we can now use to analyze how strong you are in some of these categories and how much area of opportunity for improvement you have in others. Uh, so it's, it's pretty harmless um, for a lot of the athletes and folks that we, we work with. It's kind of the first time that they're they're actually thinking about their brain being a uh, part of the the equation, right? We we very much kind of thought like physicality is the key to success in sport, but everybody's big and everybody's strong and everybody's fast at, at the most elite levels. So what differentiates? And oftentimes it's what's going on above the neck, and so we're we're helping uh, folks realize that right now through that assessment. And so through that, it's instant. Do you see the main applications for identifying? talent or is it more um, people can identify their weaknesses to work on? Um, I guess my question is more around if you have someone that is on the surface, um, a fantastic athlete, and then they go do a kind of neurocognitive assessment and it turns out they're thick as a post when it comes to, you know, how they're actually going to perform under stress um, or maybe there's like a weakness that that isn't um, readily apparent in how they've performed thus far. Do you, th do you think it's a thing that athletes go, well, no, I don't want anything to do with that because it might show up a weakness and I don't want to be identified by that weakness. Or is it the other way where it's, yes, it'll show up a weakness. That's fantastic. I can work on that. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a lot to unpack with that uh, question, but um, so let's <laughs> Sorry, start I should on, have, on should have chunked that down. No, but no. yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> I, identifying new talent, we'll start with that. Yeah, so so I'd say that there's there's kind of three main categories in how the uh, the cognitive combine is utilized, and and the first is identifying new talent, right? So whether that's at the uh, developmental level for uh, you know a, a soccer club or a rugby club uh, that has you know their their junior groups going through the development cycle, uh, a university uh looking to scout and recruit the next big talent or even at the professional level uh be it via drafts or free agency it's this idea of being able to have a uh, competitive advantage in terms of being able to recognize new talent right uh I, again like i said you know everybody's big and strong and fast now uh and so you have to look deeper than that and and you're seeing a, a bit of a momentum shift in in the field of elite performance that now we're doing big data dives and, and heavy analytics or correlational analysis to be able to find some new advantage that nobody else has, right? Uh, what this provides is just another level of insight. When, when you talk to a lot of folks uh, at, a, at a talent ID or a front office level in the world of sport, there's heavy emphasis on physicality, right? And so like we talked about that kind of traditional combine concept, but then a, a lot of work on character assessment as well. Are they going to be a good fit for our organization or our team? 
and and for for us at Platypus, we really see the cognitive combine as as kind of the the next piece of that puzzle of understanding the human. Right at the end of the day, you're working with with humans and and their people, and they're not just uh, commodities and and machines that are able to perform at a high level. And so, being able to have a better understanding uh, of that individual gives you a wealth of additional information. Right, and that could be. Yeah. Uh, identifying an individual who uh, may fall down the the lower levels of a draft, right, in in a professional uh, sport, uh, but is a diamond in the rough, right? They have an amazing brain in the the brain of an all-star, but maybe they're not quite there physically, right? Physically can be trained. Uh, Most pro sports teams and elite sports organizations are fantastic at being able to break someone down and retrain them up to put them at their peak level of physical performance. But now, yeah. now you have a better window of insight from, from a cognitive perspective, like this guy's fantastic. This gal is going to be amazing if we can get them up to a physical level. And that could, um, be, could be, say, changing positions or even changing sports um, across that, seeing a lot more of that. Uh, I mean, something the Winter Olympics have always traditionally done is someone who is, a, say, a gymnast then becomes an um, uh, aerial skier. And you go, well, if you can identify someone that's got all the physical attributes, how can they learn? How can we, as you said, the, the example of the military, how do you make that, that gap between the low skill and the high skill? How do you, how do you bring that down? So that's, that's pretty interesting around the um, identifying new talent, not just new talent in a traditional role, but also new talent across different roles. Yeah, and, and, and what's really interesting, just to, to follow up on that uh, a little bit, is th- this idea that we're starting to see with the data that we're collecting and the different client groups that we're working with, is that uh, in some sports, and, and I imagine as our database continues to grow and, and we can have statistical validity uh, in terms of the number of folks that we've collected from, we're seeing positional differences, right? Differences across sport in terms of like a profile of what you would expect to see in an athlete uh, playing that sport. Uh, So it's really interesting to think like your brain could be optimally wired for a different sport or a different position uh, than you could potentially be playing. And it just adds additional insight for coaches and for trainers to essentially kind of quantify their hunches about players and folks, right? Uh, it, it's really adding a little bit more data and um, objective measures behind what are kind of historically subjective uh, biases, right? And coaches think a certain way because they have great historical data in their experience, but it's still a bit of a hunch, right? And good coaches have really good hunches uh, for sure, but this this adds a little bit more science behind it when you're, when you're thinking about that talent ID uh, component. Yeah. And so that was, that's identifying new talent. You mentioned improving existing talent. How, um, how does, uh, obviously, the assessment, you've got base markers, you know where someone's coming from. Um, how does the program work to improve uh, someone's brain? Yeah, so, you know, this, the great thing about this is that, and you had mentioned our athletes going to be concerned that they could be identified by their weaknesses rather than their strengths. Everything that we measure is trainable. Uh, and so even if you're not the most ideal uh, athlete from a visual processing perspective, for example, uh, that's something that is uh, very trainable and you can see drastic improvements in uh, a, a pretty quick term. 
so, you know, you, you think about you going through the assessment, uh, we collect all the data, and then we provide a report, you're going to see how you compare to other players on your team, right? And so, you know, you're an athlete, you're at an elite level, you always want to be the best at everything, right? So, uh, for argument's sake and simplicity, let's say we measure 10 different categories and you're you're really good in four, you're middle of the road in another four, but there's two that you're kind of on the bottom end of your team. So, okay, great. I'm, I'm not the best on my team, but how do I compare to other elite populations, right? And so we have a, a very uh, robust database of elite performers across multiple sports, across uh, military uh, and some other cohorts as well, all in the elite spectrum. So now you're getting an opportunity, not only learning about your brain, but seeing how your brain stacks up against other folks at your caliber, caliber of talent, right? And, and I think that's really a game changer for, for a lot of these, these players and athletes is that they don't want to be compared to a general population, right? They, yeah. they know that they're elite because of where they're at. But now they're getting to see where they compare against other elite athletes, right? And whether that's within their own sport or others, now, now I'm inspired. Now I'm engaged. How can I get better? And so let's take those two, two areas that need improvement. Platypus will actually prescribe what we call our boosts, right? So to be able to improve someone's performance in that cognitive area, uh, to essentially train them. It's a training protocol, no different than going to the gym and working out to improve upper body strength, for example, right? And so those boosts range from anywhere from what I would say smart device interaction where, where you're interacting with a tablet or a smartphone for 15 to 20 minutes a day, a couple of days a week, uh, to something a little bit more in-depth and comprehensive similar to the marksmanship example, where you're actually wearing some type of measurement device like an EEG system while you're actually doing something in your sport, right? So, that, so that is that possible? Like are, they, are they portable enough? Like could you, could you put one on, on a quarterback um, while he's throwing passes? Yeah, so we've been working with uh, different athletes in different sports. Uh, so some examples are um, archery and golf putting. Uh, we've actually had NFL place kickers wearing a headset out while they're, they're kicking field goals, uh, rugby league players uh, while they're, they're doing goal kicks, um, some other examples as well, uh, basketball, shooting free throws, right? So the, the technology's gotten to a point now where you can get really good signal quality uh, that, that would be research grade level uh, signals, but you're not in a lab environment. Um, now, obviously, there's some really sophisticated math and algorithms that are in place to help decontaminate the sig signals. So when people are moving around and doing different things, um, you're still able to get a very clean uh, markers for that signal for expertise. But yeah, it, you can see practice setting environments now where folks are actually wearing uh, essentially small footprint neuroscience hardware to be able to get a better understanding of their brain state while they're performing a task. And and how far away are we seeing from those brain sensors in a game in the same way that we have GPS and heart rate trackers on players today? So the example that comes to mind is a um, rugby league, um, Jonathan Thurston, as rugby league player going for a, an extra time um, penalty kick. So similar to a, a NFL kicker going for a, 
for a field goal um, to win the game and he had a heart rate tracker on him. And then as part of the um, television broadcast, you could actually see his heart rate quite high because he'd been obviously running the whole game. And then he takes a step back and you see that the heart rate start to drop as he centers himself and he pushes him, you know, distractions away, controls his breathing and his heart rate drops on screen. Um, I mean, it would be fascinating to see what kind of, uh, whether how you visualize it, what his brain was doing at that time. Um, is that something that's on the horizon or is it kind of um, a bit gimmicky for now? Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, JT is a perfect example of dropping into that expert state, right? You were able to see some physiological measure uh, around his heart rate, which is, you know, tied to things like stress that he was able to calm himself down. He, the game was on the line. He had to perform a task and he was able to get himself into that expert zone, right? It's a great example of it. And, and that's where we're driving with a lot of our real-time neurofeedback, biofeedback measurements around expertise and give specific tasks within different sports, right? Um, so it's the same exact concept. I, I think you're spot on with that. Um, I, I think from, a, from an athlete perspective, you know, especially as these younger generations are coming in and they're more open and receptive to sensors, right? I mean, everybody's wearing a Fitbit. I'm, I have a ring that measures my, my heart rate and my sleep and uh, my, my level of activity every day, right? This idea of being able to track and monitor data around wellness and, and health, I think it's become way more acceptable versus like 10, 15 years ago where people are like, yeah. don't put stuff on me, right? Yeah, I'm not it's interested. Definitely, in it's definitely not as intrusive. Um, it's, it's just kind of accepted that. Um, yeah, so, so I think from, a, from a, a perception of the benefit of the data, I think we're, we're kind of crossing that threshold where people are very open to it. They're looking for any edge they can get to improve that. Now, from, you know, this is just me talking, I, I imagine, you know, the, the transition going from using this to, from practice to game time is, is probably a little ways off yet, right? Uh, I've had some prior experience where uh, in, in the esports community, uh, we actually worked on uh, providing overlays of people's stress in real time during like fighting competitions, right? So Smash Brothers, for example. Yeah. Uh, where we actually were able to measure stress levels between the individuals that were actively engaged uh, during a match. But then we would also have like the next person on deck <laughs> with, with uh, the measurements on as well. So let's say you and I were in the middle of a match and then uh, the next person, uh, John, for example, John was going to uh, go against the winner of, of our match. You would be able to watch John's stress level change in real time oh. based off of how your match with me is going right because yep. maybe john only kicks my butt but he struggles against you and so you can kind of see the pre-match aspect of it right so there's there's some fascinating components to this where especially now that sports betting is becoming a, a bigger and bigger thing globally right i think the u.s is, is catching up now compared to the international markets but i i see this as like a, a really interesting window of insight into you know the the confidence in a player being able to do something uh you know like a fourth quarter free throw when the game's tied in basketball is way different than that first quarter free throw when when that could be made up for right that yeah that jt's goal kick 
for the game on the line, right? That's critical. And so the idea of being able to visualize and present that to a, a broader audience, I think is fascinating because it's a deeper level of engagement for an audience and a fan. Uh, but I think it could also be a little bit of a slippery slope in terms of how that data is being utilized uh, for uh, components outside of the pitch, outside of the court. Uh, so I Definitely think it'll be will. interesting. Uh, I think it's I mean, like poker, for instance, if you put a few of those on poker players, the whole point of that is is putting yourself outwardly as, um, as in control and then obviously your brain's going a million miles an hour. So um, I think definitely with esports, yeah, fascinating. It's just striking the balance between that and, and how much how much is too much insight for the viewer at home uh, versus a coach who is is on the team. Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be it's. I think it's it's an interesting conversation right now, but I, I imagine in in three to five years it's going to be at the forefront, right? Um, I, I really anticipate that this is going to become standard practice for organizations, just like they would go through physical training and installing new plays and practice for skills, right? The, the neuroperformance, the neuroscience aspect that we've been talking about is going to become integrated in and, and become standard, right? Um, within the closed doors of a facility for practice. Uh, I think I think it's going to be an interesting conversation in a few years to see how that is eventually going to bleed into the uh, the actual broadcast and and live play. But it's a great thought. Can't wait yeah. to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I mean, one last question um, for you before we go. But uh, player health is a is a huge. Um, uh, I mean, tech is a huge benefit to player health, and it's a huge issue, um, especially around brain injuries at the moment. So CTE con- concussion. Um, all the kind of issues that are that are happening there. What is the application for neurocognitive assessment and training to brain injuries? Yeah, so I think there's there's two ways to to look at this, right? Just in terms of player health in general, uh, you know, you, you think about uh, players who who are coming into the professional level or senior level uh, are typically, you know, anywhere between like. 19 and 22 to start, right? And and so when when you come in at that age, you're you're relatively invincible. Uh, you've had so much success doing everything the way that you've done so far. Uh, and you don't really think about anything in terms of you know 10 years down the line when you're now you're the old man on the team, right? And so what you're seeing is is this really uh, interesting shift towards sports science as a way to prolong uh, an individual's career, right? And so, you know, like I said, improvements in nutrition and sleep analysis and sleep hygiene are really the big wave right now. And and what we're seeing, uh, both from an interest level and from the cognitive training that's being provided, uh, is that you can actually start to reverse that natural cognitive decline that occurs with age. Uh, you know, it's just, it's matter of fact, right? Um, as people get older, they, they slow down a little bit uh, in a lot of different ways, but you can actually start to reverse that and, and you know, conceptually, right? Take this idea that you're 32, 33 years old, but have all the, the brain skills from a cognitive uh, combine measurement level of somebody that may be in their early to mid 20s, right? So that could get you, <clears throat> excuse me, an additional contract uh, an opportunity to play one more year to get those personal bests or, or get that record, right? Uh, oftentimes when, when I talk with athletes, 
it's not their body that betrays them. It's their mind, right? They just feel like they can't keep up. Uh, the game's getting too fast for them, things like that. And so this idea of being able to prolong a player's career at a high level and maintain their cognitive health, I think, is, is a really interesting aspect. Now, yeah, when, you, when you get into of like CTE and concussion, <clears throat> you know, it's a, it's a, it's a touchy subject, right? Uh, a lot of the leagues don't like to talk about it. Uh, and, and even players are remiss to even admit that they've, they've had a concussion, right? And when you, when you look at kind of the standard protocols that are in place, they're, they're somewhat subjective, right? I know every league uses something slightly different, but oftentimes it's heavily related around a questionnaire. And so if you're eager to get back in uh, or if you don't want to look weak to your, to your teammates uh, or, or have coach look at you differently, you can probably game the system a little bit, right? Know how to answer the questions in a way uh, that will lead you to be able to get back out there sooner than you probably should. And so from our perspective, we're, we're not here to say our capability or, or even in general, just a, a an assessment uh, to identify whether or not an individual has a concussion, right? Um, I'm, I'm not in the in the business of doing diagnosis, but what I can say is that we can work with medical staff on a on a team. Let's say you know, you know what's pick your sport. What's your sport uh, that you want to play? Oh, mate, uh, Australian rules football. There you go. All right. So you know, obviously, there's a lot of heavy physical contact there and uh you're in the middle of a match and uh you, you get a you get a pretty good blow and, and you go to the ground and you, you bang your head pretty good right probably a decent uh likelihood that you had a concussive event but we don't know the severity right so you go to the sideline your medical staff evaluates you uh they believe that you have a concussion right uh so what we can do is we can come in and uh, assuming that we have baseline data on you already, right? That we collected data on you while you were healthy, maybe in the preseason, something like that. We can do another assessment, do another cognitive combine run through with you and see if there is a severe change in one of those different cognitive skills that we talked about, right? Yeah. So we run you through that reassessment and we've identified that your decision-making capability is severely hampered compared to uh, what your baseline was. Well, that, that's a great uh, bit of information that the medical staff and, and the medical team can use to prescribe a remediation protocol to, to get you back on your feet, right? Um, you know, I, I, I draw an analogy to a physical injury, right? If you were out there on the pitch and you twisted your ankle really bad and you couldn't run, you don't go to the gym and do bicep curls, right? You, you work yeah. on flexibility and, and, and rehabilitation for your ankle. It's the same thing from a brain's perspective. Knowing what areas of your brain have been impacted by that concussive event can now lead to a more tailored uh, uh, rehab protocol to heal that area. And, and one of the really interesting things uh, when, when you talk about the change in the science and how that's changing perspective is that, you know, I'd say even five years ago, but, but obviously further back than that, there's a very common idea that if you had a concussive event, put, put sunglasses on, put them in a quiet room, do a lot of sleep, right? Like no stimulation whatsoever. Hmm. And, and that, that was, was only that was the, 
that was the concussive events that were obvious. Um, it's, you know, right. the, they go up, you're completely knocked out cold and you, you drive the bus. I don't know if you've seen that when people's arms go straight up, they're kind of, they're, they're out cold, they're lying there, they're, they're done, they're collapsing, but it's, it's a lot more insidious than that. And that's what we've seen um, in a lot of players is it can be a fairly innocuous knock, um, but then they have, um, you know, concussion and then symptoms that might appear a month later, two months later, three months later. Um, you know, in a few years down the track, if it's it's proper brain disease, but they can get away with a self-report on saying, "Oh no, coach, I'm fine. Get me get me back out there," or I might just sit this play out and then get back there. They couldn't in physical injuries. I mean, I broke my back playing footy two years ago, and I tried to run run on. The coach is like, "Yeah, I think you should probably sit on the bench." Um, you know, that's <laughs> that's not one that you can you can pull the wool over his eyes. But there was. Plenty of guys that I played with that would play through concussions, head knocks, um, and then uh, just report that you know maybe a day later they, they might have forgotten a few things or whatever that is. So I think it's it's incredible to have that, um, as you said, modern cutting edge medicine and going what's happening here and the personalised approach as well, using tech to personalise. Yeah. As you said, that the, the what does their brain normally look like? This is what their brain looks like now. And, and that and that leads to the, the importance of understanding that, right? Because, you know, we, we were talking about, okay, so it's subjective, you answer the questions right, and then for a long time everybody thought that putting them in a dark room and, and not a lot of stimulation was the way to go. And, and the literature has now strongly indicated that it's like one of the worst things that you can do, right, is that there's actually a, a critical window of probably about 48 hours after that concussive event occurs where that damage has occurred in your brain uh, where if you you work on training that specific cognitive skill right to activate that network in your brain it's it signals to heal right it actually works on reconnecting those neurons that the the connection may have been damaged or or frayed or sheared uh, because of that physical blow now you're accelerating the healing process uh and are actually you know inducing uh recovery in the in the correct cortical area and so having that good baseline information having a better understanding of of where the impact has occurred from a cognitive perspective is really going to become critical uh you know as as players continue to uh face these whether like you said obvious or um innocuous um, concussive events. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty important piece to think about from a player health perspective. Fantastic. Well, yeah, let's, let's hope it becomes a bit more of an industry standard and um, does alleviate those injuries. Well, uh, thanks for your time today, Tom. That was, that was a really interesting discussion. I'm um, covering off a lot of, a lot of things there. I, I think I need to go do my homework on uh, what was it? Motion. What was your th your undergrad work on? Oh, uh, motion perception. Yeah, so the, the, the motion idea perception is called the versus flat flow, flow state. I need to do my homework on yeah. that. There you go, man. <laughs> got that. Got that Awful. one wrong straight out of the gates. So um, that's why you're the neuroscientist, <laughs> and, and I'm I'm just the dumb host. So, um, but hmm. thank you, thank you for the time. Um, we'll include a, a few links in the show notes to some of this stuff. Um, I'll see if I can get a clip of that JT. Um, field goal that I was talking about um, so you can kind of see and then just have a little bit of think about if we can apply some platypus data to that but uh, thanks again and um, yeah great chat
Awesome. No, I appreciated the opportunity and, uh, you know, and anything that we can do to kind of help propel this idea of applied neuroscience uh, is, is exciting uh, for me. So I really appreciate the fact that you uh, showed the interest. So thank you. Awesome. And before I let you go, favorite team or sports person? Oh man, favorite team. Um, so I'm a diehard Philadelphia fan, and this is probably going to upset some of our clients. <laughs> but I, uh, I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, you know I've been bleeding green as a Philadelphia Eagles fan uh, my whole life, for better or for worse. Uh, and geez, in terms of favorite players, I mean, I grew up watching Jordan, so it's hard not to. Uh, idolize him but yeah I mean I could I the list could go on uh you know both internationally and, and nationally from a sports perspective but we we wouldn't have enough uh podcast time for me to go yeah we'll, we'll, do, we'll do another one for that but I think MJ is a pretty pretty safe bet and um the, the yeah. Eagles I'm sure there'll be <laughs> there'll be views on that one but yeah that's that's fair I expect that <laughs> <laughs> awesome all right thanks Tom um, we'll, we'll chat to you later. All right. Thank you much, man. Appreciate it. There you have it. Episode one of Sports Tech Feed. Of course, if you enjoyed the episode, then please like and subscribe on your chosen podcast medium. It's a really big help in getting the word out about the show. Apologies uh, for the slightly grainy audio quality. Due to Tom's busy travel schedule, we needed to record via video call. Next week, however, uh, we've got a great interview with Michael Cole, the CTO of European Tour and Ryder Cup, discussing digital transformation in golf, one of the world's most traditional sports. So really interesting juxtaposition there. Uh, I met up with Michael at the European Tour HQ, so audio quality and, of course, most importantly, that guest quality is up to the high level you can come to expect from Sports Tech Feed each week. Stay tuned for that on Monday, but in the meantime, if you have any feedback, then please feel free to get in touch via LinkedIn. Uh, Thomas Loams, don't think there's too many of you out there, so it should be fairly easy to find. Or you can email me at thomas at vumero.com. That's V-U-M-E-R-O dot com.